You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. What is Outcomes Research? How can practitioners use it in their daily practice to better patient care? Joining us today to discuss outcome research, what every physician should know, is Dr. Glenn Eisen, Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine and the Division of Gastroenterology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much, Dr. Goldstein. Outcomes research, what does it mean? Outcomes research is an important field that includes the systematic study of, of what we do in practice every day, clinical practice, but it's focused on the things that are important to patients, patient-centered outcomes. And these can include several different topics, including patient satisfaction, health-related quality of life, functional status, and the cost of medical care. And the focus is really on effectiveness. In other words, does it work in the real world for your individual patient or patient population rather than efficacy? Does it work in a clinical trial? Why is it so important? If it's proven in a clinical trial, why won't it work in real time? Well, clinical trials are important because they establish whether a a treatment or intervention can work, but they're done under optimal circumstances. The patients are usually blindly allocated to to different treatment arms. They're followed closely. They're incentivized to remain in the trial, and it's really the best of all possible worlds when you're in a clinical trial. The reasons we need to move beyond clinical trials is because the practice of medicine daily life is much more messy. Patients don't always follow up. They may not adhere to the uh, treatment prescriptions you give them. And also, clinical trials are usually prescribed by a certain patient population. You can't study everyone with acid reflux. You can only study small groups at a time. So, for example, if you did a trial looking for in patients with gastroesophageal reflux, only patients with severe erosive esophagitis, and you showed that drug X worked, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for the patient in front of you who has non-erosive disease. So we often have to extrapolate and utilize the information and see if it actually works effectively for the patients that are in front of you. That brings to mind the word generalizability. How does that apply? Well, generalizability applies to taking the results of a trial or a study and utilizing it across a broad spectrum of patients to see that the results are generalizable, not just from the single example, but to the broad example. And if the results are not generalizable, then the physician needs to figure out which patients a intervention will work for and which perhaps a different inter- intervention might. What about the word surrogate markers? How does that play into this whole scenario? Well, there is a broad spectrum of surrogate markers, but if you're meaning looking at different blood tests or endpoints which don't necessarily link strongly to an outcome, they can be problematic. And I'll give you some surrogate clinical endpoints. For example, and I'm going to stick with the example of acid reflux for now, if you did a study looking at, med- at a medication and it, it actually improved the pH profile over a 48-hour period, but it didn't improve patient symptoms, then ultimately the drug is going to fail because what we care about is whether patient's symptomatology improves and hand-in-hand their health-related quality of life. If you just look at the proxy or surrogate marker of less abnormalities in the pH profile, that may have some linkage to the outcome, but if it doesn't link strongly and predict the outcome well, and it's really not going to be helpful. 
And until we started doing more and more outcomes research in the last 20 to 30 years, we frequently utilized surrogate markers rather than important patient-centered endpoints for studies. Part of the reason is, generally, it's easier to study these. One of the complaints I get about outcomes research in evidence-based medicine is that it's subjective. It's based on what the patient thinks. And when someone complains about that to me, I say, exactly. That's what we want to know, what the patient thinks, how it affects the patients. It's not enough just to say that a a serologic marker is improved or some outcome that has a tenuous association with how the patient feels somehow looks better to the physician. Why don't we require outcomes research for all interventions that physicians do? Well, that is on my wish list, but it's not always possible because some research protocols really don't look at satisfaction or quality of life or necessarily cost. They could look just at, do you prevent colon cancer or you decrease the polyp burden of a patient? For example, you couldn't necessarily call a colon cancer screening study with colonoscopy versus flexible sigmoidoscopy outcomes research unless it was linked to a patient-centered outcome. For example, mortality from colorectal cancer or perhaps the cost of the medical care. But before you can run, you have to walk and you have to prove that, first of all, your intervention that you're studying can have an improvement in the area you're interested in and then link that to an outcome. It's interesting, until probably the early 90s, all hypertension studies only looked at blood pressure measurements as the primary outcome. Well, when you're doing that in clinical trials, that's all well and good, and you can look at the efficacy between drug A and drug B. But if you don't include side effect profiles, whether the patient will adhere to treatment and related downstream costs and effects, you're not really looking at patient outcomes. And there was a seminal trial that was published in the New England Journal, and the primary outcome, it was comparing a diuretic to an ACE inhibitor, and the outcome was health-related quality of life, because we knew that both of these interventions could actually make a difference in blood pressure, but which would improve the patient's quality of life more. And that's very important when you're looking at interventions which are closely related in how well they work. If you've got two or three treatments that work very well, how does the healthcare provider, the patient, and the payer decide which intervention to use? That's where outcomes research comes in because it looks at the effects on the patient. Well, let's turn our attention to another term that's commonly found in the literature, and that's cost-effectiveness. What does that term mean, and why is that so important? It might not necessarily be important to a patient, although in these days of economic problems, it's probably important to everyone. Cost-effectiveness relates to comparing interventions and seeing basically, in the lowest possible terms, the bang for your buck. How much do you achieve monetarily by an intervention? And how much does it cost to add a year of life to a patient or add, more importantly, a quality-adjusted year of life in which the patient gets an extra year of life from the intervention, but it's a, a year of life that they feel would be worth living? And there are different types of studies that can look at this. There's cost-benefit analysis, there's cost-utility analysis, and then there's also budget impact models, just to name three. Cost-benefit analysis are very difficult in medicine because we really can't put an absolute dollar amount on what your life is worth or how much an extra six months a year is worth. But if we look at cost-utility analysis, it gives us a sense of how much money it costs extra to perform an intervention which will add something to the patient's life. And the going metric, although it hasn't changed much in recent years, is if you add a patient's quality-adjusted life year, that's probably worth about $50,000. And there are some payers and insurers, as well as the government, that make decisions on healthcare utilization based on whether it's under that metric. For example, if you've got some screening tool that costs $3 million per extra year of life saved, 
And that might not make the cut because we really can't afford that. And the difficulty at this point in the practice of medicine is even though we don't really think we're doing it, we generally ration care. If money was no issue and we had unlimited funds and we could just basically manufacture money in the form of bailouts, we could just give everyone everything. And, and sometimes that's what patients want. But as far as deciding if you had someone in your office and you were able to offer the majority of patients vaccinations versus spending $200,000 in the last 30 days of their life, if you looked at the cost effectiveness of that, vaccinations, although very expensive because applied broadly over pretty much the entire population, can be very cost effective because it doesn't cost much per extra year of life saved. Whereas the, the bang for the buck we get in end-of-life care is very limited because the majority of patients are really at the end of their term and spending as much money as we want may slightly improve their quality of life but really doesn't add to the length of their life. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights and ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me today to discuss outcomes in research, what every physician should know, is Dr. Glenn Eisen, Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine and the Division of Gastroenterology at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Well, Glenn, let's pick up a little bit more on integrating outcomes research into clinical practice. There's a term floating around, evidence-based medicine. Is this a part of outcomes? Is it a parallel thought process? How does it relate to outcomes research? I think that the terms overlap quite a bit because evidence-based medicine is the process of using the best evidence we have in the clinical literature to make decisions about individual patients. And where the overlap occurs is it's generally related to outcomes because when you're making decisions about the care of your patient who's sitting in front of you, you're predominantly concerned with improving their outcome regardless of how you're defining that. Evidence-based medicine does not involve basic science. It's not translational medicine. And it's not necessarily based solely on clinical trials where you're looking at a large population. The data from a clinical trial may be able to be applied to your patient in front of you, but it may be different. And the way that EBM, which is evidence-based medicine for short, is best utilized is coming up with a focused clinical question. And when you focus that, you do a literature search to see what's available currently that can help answer how to best take care of that patient. One of the difficulties of evidence-based medicine is that there is some pushback from physicians who feel that it endorses cookbook practice, which is not true, at least in my opinion. What it does endorse is coming up with systematic algorithms for taking care of certain types of patients utilizing the best evidence. And you'd be amazed how often we don't use the best evidence in practice. If anything, I like to call it, rather than evidence-based medicine, it's eminence-based medicine. The person who's the most senior, a professor like yourself, says at the top of their lungs why we should do something and everyone falls into place. Evidence-based medicine is actually based on facts rather than, than opinion. Now, where practice has to fill in for EBM is the fact that about 75% of all we do in day-to-day -day practice, we don't have all the data yet. And this is a quandary which is gradually being overcome because there are many more adherents of both EBM and outcomes research and the majority of clinical research these days in all fields, including GI, is focused in these two areas. So it's important for clinicians to understand these concepts and hopefully to embrace them and to get the tools to utilize them in daily practice. Certainly, we always want to take care of our patients based on things we know, not on things we speculate. There are some other terms that are out there, again, in the literature. Meta-analyses, okay, 
retrospective studies looking at using large databases. How do we weight these different types of approaches for outcomes research, if you will? Well, there is a general hierarchy of study design, and this crosses into the whole field of clinical epidemiology as well as what we've touched on. And at the top of this hierarchy is the randomized clinical trial. If you have a double-blinded randomized clinical trial comparing interventions, that's probably the best we can do because what it does through the randomization process is it equally allocates all the possible confounding factors that may take place that may actually alter what the data looks like. And, you know, obviously when you're doing a study, you can control through statistical assessment or matching factors that you clearly think have something to do with the outcome. If you were looking at cancer rates or GERD or anything like that, you'd care about alcohol use and smoking and race and gender and age. Well, those are the easy ones because we can all think of those. But there may be some unknown factors which are actually driving the differences in how a patient does with one intervention or another. And when you have a randomized trial, this, if it's large enough, will balance all of those factors so there shouldn't be any systematic bias. The difficulty is a lot of things are not amenable to randomized controlled trials. For example, if we wanted to look at looking at ablation for Barrett's esophagus, and we wanted to just look at patients that had Barrett's esophagus with no dysplasia, and the outcome we were interested in is cancer, you would have to randomize thousands of patients and follow them for multiple years before you'd get your answer. A lot of things such as that are just not feasible, and we need other different types of studies to look at that. I'd like to thank my guest from Oregon Health and Science University, Dr. Glenn Eisen. Dr. Eisen, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Thanks very much, Dick. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.